Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And today we have yet another jam-packed episode. We've got an interview for you because we actually got out of our house and went somewhere. Yeah, we're actually hearing from three different people today. Way, yeah, very little us. of us, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. some of you might be saying, hooray! <laughs> and it makes a big change, yeah. but yeah. Um, but before that, we're going to kick off with our sightings because temperatures are rising and there have been quite a lot of things to see in gardens, which is excellent. The insect world has come alive again. Just woken up, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. I think the day for me, the most exciting day was seeing our first hairy footed flower bee because, I mean, you know, how can you not be excited about that? It is that officially is spring. spring. We say spring has sprung. One, <laughs> the spring equinox, or the hairy footed flower bees are out. But I did put on a post on our website, Facebook page, that there is a huge caveat that we could still be inundated with snow. Oh, yeah, but that's spring Britain. snow then, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But yes, so we've seen hairy-footed flower bees and they've been hovering around the pulmonary in gardens. The males, very difficult to photograph because they're basically patrolling these patches of nectar-rich flowers waiting for the ladies to arrive. Yeah, they just dart around, don't they? <laughs> yeah. I wonder what they... I don't know what they would naturally eat because there is a native pulmonaria, but as far as I know, it's not that widely distributed. So yeah. if there weren't all these gardens with the cultivated pulmonaria in. I don't know what they'd go for. I like this as a question to put out to people. If you know what they naturally would go for in the wild, then please get in touch. Yeah, if you see them on any native plants, do let us know. That would be interesting. Yep, definitely. But you've had possibly the most exciting sighting and you didn't even share it with me. Well, there's more to show you, I think. Anyway, let me explain. So we work for a garden, we grow brassicas in this garden and they get absolutely hammered by the large and small white butterflies so we being good organic gardeners netted them anyway so at the end of the year collected all this netting up and i've been storing it in the greenhouse just been clearing everything out and amongst this netting obviously some of the caterpillars had got in and they'd turned into the chrysalis and i was looking at some of these chrysalis chrysalises it's chrysalises, isn't it? I was looking at some of these chrysalises <laughs> and um, I saw small holes in the sides of them. Obviously, they'd been parasitized by some of these parasitic wasps or Parasitoid. parasitoid wasps yeah, yeah. that we've talked about on a previous episode. <laughs> anyway, I know we did an episode on it, but well, what I thought was that each wasp would lay a single egg into a single chrysalis. But I thought, well, I'm just going to have a look inside one of these. You're so curious. Yeah, like so, so I just crushed one to <laughs> have a look inside. I've left all the rest of them, but I just wanted to have a look inside one. And there must have been 20 bright, metallic, emerald green wow. parasitic wasps in there. Now, they were dead. Okay. And I think what had happened was they'd come into the greenhouse and it got too hot or something for them you know too early or too dry early in the year something like that so I don't know if the rest of them in the other chrysalises um, (laughs) have survived but I've obviously left them Um, you know naturally they wouldn't have gone into a greenhouse you know over the winter they'd have just been outside but yeah 20 at least 20 absolutely tiny each one must have been only half a millimeter long something wow, like that i mean i was supposed good. to be working so i wasn't <laughs> i didn't have all you know my measuring equipment out and everything but i know we need to keep our loops on us at this time of year because there's just so much to see yeah i wish i had my macro lens yeah, yeah. it would have made time. a great photo but if the rest of them don't you know hatch out i will actually break the rest open 
much later in the year when I'm, I'm certain that they've missed their chance. Uh, I'll break the rest open and, and take some photos because, yeah, one chrysalis, at least 20 parasitoid wasps babies in there. And they'd already, because they lay as an egg, don't they? They lay, yeah. lay as an egg, yeah. turn into a pupa, eat the inside, and then they pupate into the adults. Yeah. And that whole process had already happened. So it was the actual adults that were ready to go. But I just yeah. think that the adults were sadly dead. They but just failed. Yeah. Wow. Yes, well, if it's still there, I want you to show me that, please. Yeah, I'll take I'll take even some if photos it is a bit gruesome. and uh, even a video. Yeah, perfect. to share with the world. Something more alive. Um, we had a lacewing in the van, and it was absolutely stunning, like all lacewings. But it made me look up because it was not the classic green, and it made me look up how many species of lacewing we have. And yeah, it was we kind have, of like a beigey color one, wasn't it? It was, yeah, grey beige, but with that beautiful iridescence on the wings. It was just, it was very ethereal looking and yeah we've got 18 species which is just mad i think most people don't realize like the the vast variety of different things i didn't realize no most gardeners just think lacewing that's a good thing but yeah 18 of them i mean that's interesting in itself isn't it and as well as that we've also seen loads and loads of bumblebees they've been out for a little while on warm spring mornings yeah the queens are out we had a queen in our garden yesterday oh did we hovering around we've got various deadwood piles and i think she was looking oh. for a spot to make a nest in yeah oh god we yeah well we'd have to leave that alone now then if she well, has gone I don't, in she there. flew off Okay. <laughs> she was like oh this looks nice <laughs> well i did also see one looking in amongst a hedgerow in a garden on a sunny side of the garden she was just yeah bumbling around on the ground and then i saw her actually crawl into sort of a gap in all the the dropped wood and leaves nice. so hopefully she's actually settled in that place because that'd yeah. be a really lovely nest yeah they're looking for old sort of mouse holes and things like that a lot of the time aren't they they are yes and on the same day, actually, it was, it was a couple of weeks ago now, we had a really warm day for the first time and there were loads of hoverflies, really tiny hoverflies. I didn't, I can't ID them. And uh, definitely what I think is a mining bee. But again, it was flying too fast for me to get some decent picks. I've seen at least three identify. different species of mining bee Excellent. out and about, of yeah. which I am not an expert. So I couldn't tell you the species, <laughs> but I could see that they were different. So, yeah. yeah. But also delving deeper into the soil because that's where we spend a lot of our time as gardeners we we've both independently found the same invertebrate which we both didn't recognize yeah which we've never seen before and i've just popped it on the insects and invertebrates page on facebook i love that page and immediately someone came back and told me it was a two-pronged bristle tail and this is in the order diplura which is actually, it's not an insect. It's a, a non-insect hexapod like the, the springtails or the columbola. So it sits alongside the columbola order. And yeah, it looked like a ghostly earwig with really, really long tail, like two tails. And I've just read up on them and basically they are, they're omnivore. Although the longer the tail, which are actually called Circe, there's like two sort of tails that drop out the back the more likely it is to be a herbivore. So I think that's what we've seen. Mm. Uh, we'll share those photos on our newsletter, I think, because uh, it's really, yeah, quite a beautiful little insect, which I can't believe we've not seen before because we're always not in the mud. Not an insect. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, invertebrate. <laughs> <laughs> Just say invertebrate. It covers everything. If that, if this is confusing for some people, yeah. we should explain that. So this is a, it's a hexapod. Yeah, a non-insect hexapod. Yeah, but the hexapod, it's, they all have six legs, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But not all invertebrates that have six legs are, are insects. insects exactly, exactly. So, so the insects are 
a really, really big group. And technically, anybody who's an entomologist is into insects. Yes. But practically, they're into invertebrates. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not, not every little critter that you find is, a, is an insect, actually. Yeah. Thank you very much for clearing that up. And then... I guess moving on to flowers, because I think there is just so much looking good now. It, it, you know, spring really has sprung. But I want to give a special shout out to red dead nettle. Yes. Because it is having its, its heyday. the year of red dead nettle, <laughs> definitely. It's on every single verge that we've driven past. It's in every every scrap of soil that I look at. Seems yeah, to have lots red of gardens where, we, where it's been for a couple of years. It's just exploded. Yeah. And I don't know why, because it was really hot last year. Yeah. So it could be that either it needs a warm summer for the seeds to germinate. Or it could cope with that dry, whereas other could, things couldn't. Exactly, so and other things have died the, off. The, yeah, that's, mm, yeah, could be both those things yeah. together. So we don't know what's going on. But yeah, never seen so much red dead nettle around. And it's all flowering right now. And it's just absolutely yeah. gorgeous. And yeah, we didn't know if it was just us. But we saw Kate Bradbury had put on twitter hadn't she yeah she reckoned it was a bumpy year and there were just hundreds of replies of people saying exactly the same so it's definitely something that is happening red nettle is having a good year and it's a really fantastic pollinator plant as well because the little flowers are just stacked full of nectar and pollen so yeah it's an excellent one to keep if you have it in your garden and moving on to something more feathery green finches i always have my ears tuned to the birds but this year more than any previous year that we've been outside, the greenfinches really have been taking centre stage, for me anyway. And I've actually had anecdotally other people say the same thing. So we were wondering whether they were actually having a bit of a resurgence. Yeah, because um, they suffered really bad with the trichomonosis we've talked about on a previous episode. Yeah, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's getting a, it feels like more a trend. and more each year. Yes, yeah. but anecdotally. And we don't like to go only by anecdotal evidence. So I think we should definitely get in touch with the British Trust for Ornithology, the BTO. We should. Speaking of the BTO, that is an excellent segue to introduce the second of the speakers from the Wildlife Garden Forum Symposium, which happened earlier this year, which we mentioned in the last episode. And we've got another clip for you from that symposium. And this time it's Rob Jacks, who is from the BTO. And it's an extract from his talk, Observing Extreme Weather Events Through Weekly Garden Wildlife Records. And if you like this extract, then you can actually go back and watch all of last year's speakers on the forum's website, which is wlgf.org. I'm assuming a few of you might not be familiar with the BTO Garden Birdwatch Survey. It is similar to the RSPB's uh, Big Garden Birdwatch in that we ask people to send us um, their maximum counts of garden birds. But unlike the RSPB, we ask people to do this every week throughout the year, and not just to do their birds, but also to do other wildlife as well. We have been running since 1995 for looking at birds, and then we began to add different groups from 2003 onwards. And now we not only do birds, we do mammals, reptiles and amphibians, uh, dragonflies and damselflies, butterflies, bumblebees, and a few other invertebrate species. People used to pay to take part in the survey. Uh, it was £17, and people, well, people still do, and they received a magazine. But since lockdown, we, we launched a free option given the circumstances. 
Um, and fortunately, people really took to that. We've, we've doubled the amount of people taking part, which is fantastic. And every week we receive, depending on the time of year, around 6,000 submissions. And anyway, so what I'm going to um, start by looking at is the spring of uh, 2021. It was an unusually wet spring. We had pretty much constant rain throughout most of May, if I remember correctly, April as well. You can see here from one of the Met Office maps, most of most of the UK received much more rain than is typical for that time of year. And not only was it very, very wet, it was also quite cold as well. Fortunately, because we get data received every week, we can quickly see how lots of different wildlife responds to the, these, um, these weather events. And one of the ones many of you probably pay attention to in your garden is the blue tit. They are um, still one of our most common garden birds. Um, and here we've got a graph looking at maximum average counts per garden across the UK. In a normal year, what typically happens is we have quite a lot of birds in January. As we get towards spring and breeding season, these birds start to separate into their territories. So the counts go down. And then around the beginning of June, we see this really big spike. This is young birds emerging from the nest up in people's counts in their gardens. And then it, it kind of vary, varies throughout the rest of the year until we get to the end. But as hopefully you can see with the red line, uh, 2021 was very, very unusual. We saw a massive delay in the emergence of um, blue tits coming out of that nest. This peak was much later. It was also not quite as strong as we typically see in normal years. This was almost certainly a response to this unusual weather. Um, blue tits are a species which have a lot of chicks in their nest. They have one brood a year and they almost literally put all their eggs in one basket and hope, hope for the best. This means that they need a lot of caterpillars in order to, to raise those chicks. Sometimes I think I've, I think they can raise as many as 14. I think that's the high count for one female to lay in a, se in a, in a se season. But normally it's going to be around 9, 10 or 11 chicks in the nest. They need a lot of food to do this. So when we have these unusual weather events that are occurring during this peak time, we, we see that blue tit numbers are really, really quickly affected. Um, they've have some ability to respond to it. You could, they, they would have attempted to nest a bit later, but some will began quite early and probably found it was quite disastrous. We know from nest records that the BTO also collects that many, many blue tit nests failed during that year. What is likely happening is the cold weather, the caterpillars that these uh, blue tits need to feed their young, they're coming out later, they're a lot delayed in their growth, there isn't as many around for them to feed their young, and the wet weather quite often knocks them from trees as well, which means that as they're looking for food, they're not able to find it. And we're still seeing these low counts for, for, for the tit species up, and, up till now. Anyway, how do we use all of this information? As we know more and more about what birds are doing in our gardens, we can also use this to guide further research. We've got quite a lot coming up this year. We've got some papers looking at butterfly numbers using garden bird watch data, which hopefully I'll be able to share at some point. It gives us really good advice for how we can prepare for changes in the climate. I'm not going to talk too much about <laughs> planting, but it's certainly becoming a growing issue with people trying to work out how to how to have successful gardens in new weather conditions. But we can also maybe start to expect some new species coming in. We know nut hatches have been spreading north and that are becoming much more co common in Scotland. We're getting lots of butterfly species moving north, like the holly blues I mentioned earlier. And we may even get some continental species arriving. Um, Southern small white, which is very similar to our small white, has been um, put forward as a species that could arrive in the UK any year. It's been expected for the last couple of years. If you have candy tuft in your garden, it's certainly one worth looking out for. Or if you'd like to see it in your garden, you live in the southeast, a good one to plant. 
And we're probably also going to see shifts in habits. So we're seeing more hedgehogs being reported for out the winter months because they're finding plenty of food. It's not cold enough for them to hibernate. So they carry on throughout the rest of the thing. And we may see some changes in phenology of species. Butterflies can show new generations when we have these long, hot summers. Things like speckled woods can, can fit in another generation. We're already seeing changes in how diseases appear in gardens. Trichomonosis used to be a late summer thing. Now we see it all year round. We're seeing new diseases arriving, issue two in 2020, uh, 2020, which really affected, seemed to really affect um, black bear numbers in London and the southeast. And ranavirus, which affects frogs, is probably going to be more prevalent as we get warmer ponds. If you do see any diseases in your garden of, of um, any vertebrates in your, in your garden, please report to the Garden Wildlife Health. That's a joint project between BTO, the Vets at the Zoological Society of London, RSPB and Frog Life to help monitor. We can see these changes as they happen. Thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to take part in the survey, please join. Um, it's free to do so, and you'll receive a weekly newsletter. And we can keep you informed about all the things going on in people's gardens. A bit of podcast news now. We have a new website. Way. Way. Finally, thanks, wildlifegardenpod.com. Everything in one place. It's basically on Substack, which was already doing our newsletter, but now we've actually used um, Substack as our podcast host. So there was a bit of a uh, switcheroo. So if anybody had trouble accessing the last episode, then that's why. But it should all be sorted out now. All the show notes, all the podcasts, all the episodes, and all the newsletters are now all in one place and it means when you get a newsletter if you've already signed up to our newsletter you can actually listen to the latest episode right inside the newsletter straight from your computer or however you're listening wildlifegardenpod.com there will be lots more going on on the website there's going to be sort of a chat function and all sorts of stuff but we'll talk about that another time rather than going on about it now but in every single newsletter and in the show notes for each episode there is a link to our paypal um, to make a donation so all the donations we receive go towards funding the podcast we don't make any profit from the podcast it all just goes on to our equipment and hosting fees everything like that and in the next episode we're going to be reading out everybody who has donated recently so if you want to hear your name in the next episode then click on one of those links up next, we have a gardening correspondent from around the UK. We are always, always looking for new correspondents. And I think a lot of people get in touch and say, I'm interested, but I'm really scared. And I just want to say, we're scared when we do this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it really isn't as daunting as it might sound. And obviously, you can send us longer than the five minutes and then Ben will edit it down. We're just looking for basically what you're doing in your own gardens. We've got this lovely little gang of wildlife gardeners now and it's really galvanising when we hear other people doing good things for wildlife and I think other people are benefiting loads from it as well. Yeah, it'd be really lovely to hear from you. The easiest way to do that is just to record yourself on your phone on a voice recording app. Remember to say who you are and where you are as well and just send that through to hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. This week, we've got a bit of a different perspective and we're hearing from groundskeeper and wildlife gardener, Jonathan Ashman. Enjoy the clip.
everyone. Um, hope you can hear me alright on this recording. I'm stood on top of a hill um, in Lancashire, England, um, where I work as a groundskeeper, along with three other gents, um, on a 14-acre site, some memorial gardens. Um, but we do have quite a large hill and some wooded areas as well. Um, and it's been my mission over the three and a half years I've been here to try and take it from a very manicured set of grounds, even the areas where people don't really venture, um, to to try and, well, increase the biodiversity, uh, create more habitats, uh, improve it for pollinators. We've put, since I've been here, 24 bird boxes up um, just early this year after losing 10 trees in last winter's storms. We've planted, which I got through the Woodland Trust on a student programme because I'm an environmental science student with the Open University. I managed to get 120 saplings, native saplings, that we've put majority of them in March this year. It was a little bit late, but they've, they're doing well. We put cherries in, silver birch, uh, rowan or mountain ash. Um, what else was there? There was, uh, yeah, cherry and hawthorn as well which we used to actually repair a couple of holes in the hedges we've also used some dead hedging technique that i i, I encouraged for fixing where a, a car drove through the hedge next to the road um, and amongst that dead hedging we planted some hawthorn which are growing up and as is a sycamore actually that's just naturalized self-seeded um, there's a, a lot of trees on the 14 acre site we obviously the memorial gardens themselves we need to keep manicured that's you know people visit their loved ones that are laid to rest we have a lot of roses there which are unfortunately sprayed I don't I've refused to do that myself but there is one of the lads that's licensed to do that and it has reduced though um, I must admit, I'm in the rear quite a lot about all these things, and uh, he used to spray four or five times religiously a year. Um, early in the morning, he did try and avoid the bees as much as I'd, I've told him that's not necessarily always going to happen, even doing it early in the morning, but uh, it reduced, he only did it twice this year, so at least that's a, a step in the right direction. Um, but we've also, we've also left dead wood that's fallen which never used to happen it all used to get taken away any trees that were removed the stumps were ground out um, we now leave the stumps and we actually try and hollow the stumps out and use them as planters natural planters um, that way the you know the roots underground the mycelial network of the fungi can continue and in three of those stumps we've replanted cherries that are doing better than any cherries we put in anywhere else probably because that network network's still there to feed them um, oh, there's so much to cover. There's so much to cover. Um, we we get foxes, we get hedgehogs. Uh, we've left a big portion this past year of the hillside. Uh, we've let it grow long and mow and pass through it. The ride on mowers uh, and the butterflies on the sunny days were incredible. I've never, you know, I like to go to my nature reserves, and I've never seen so many butterflies as on top of the hill that we had. So that was fantastic. We have um, common newts, toads, common frogs. We've got log piles we've left around. And we've even got, I think it's yellow meadow ants or red meadow ants. I'm not sure. Meadow ants anyway. that have got little tussocky hills that they've created. 
uh, which is incredible. I'm hoping that'll bring in green woodpeckers because I know they like to eat ants. Uh, we do have lesser spotted woodpeckers. Sorry, greater spotted woodpeckers. I wish we had the former. Greater spotted woodpeckers. Um, all sorts, goldfinch, long-tailed tits, jays. Um, they're, they're quite entertaining. Uh, we have buzzards overhead, sparrowhawks, kestrels, all of which, you know, hint at a good ecosystem. Um, yeah, and we've, we've two large wildflower areas. One's strictly kind of woodland edge native and one is not native and non-native for a colour boost on the side of the hill um, but yeah anyway there's a lot of work doing here it's not my own garden it is my work but we're trying to do what we can thanks guys take it easy and enjoy your gardening Time now for our latest guest. We haven't had an interview for a while and we were really happy to go down last month to the Big Smoke down to London at the Natural History Museum where we interviewed Dr Abigail Lowe. Dr Lowe is an expert in what pollinators are visiting what flowers but she's also now a citizen science officer at the museum working on their urban nature project. This is going to be a two-part interview. First part you're going to hear now, the second part in the next episode. Everything that we talk about including all the papers that we mention will be in the show notes. And if you want to find out more about her latest project, which actually launches soon on April the 22nd, it's called Nature Overheard, then you can go to nhm.ac.uk forward slash nature overheard. Hello. I guess a really good place to start is for you to introduce yourself and the work you do here at the Natural History Museum. So I'm one of over 350 scientists at the Natural History Museum. So a lot of people know that we do work on um, fossils and dinosaurs, but they might not know that we research all sorts of other things. Um, so a lot of the research is focused on climate change and the impacts of that and how we can conserve biodiversity. But my role is quite unique and it's really cool because I get to help people who may not have any scientific training to get involved in science and we call this community science. So my role is community science officer. So. Oh, fabulous. Are you enjoying it? Yes, enjoying it so far, loving it. Very fast paced. Um, we've got our project launching on in April. So uh, yeah, it's all been very very quick excellent but before you were here you were actually at the national botanic garden of wales weren't you and i think that's where you researched your phd what was your topic there yeah so i was really lucky to be based at the national botanic garden of wales for four years um looking at my um, PhD topic. So the title of that was Investigating Floral Resource Use by Pollinators Using Pollen DNA Metabarcoding. Get your lips around that. It's <laughs> quite I, long. <laughs> I can never remember the full title um, because we did various talks over the years which were basically a, a, a variation of that title. So yeah, it's, uh, it's quite difficult for me to remember that. But yeah, that PhD was in collaboration with Bangor University, but I was based on site to collect all my data. And essentially what I did was um, looked at pollen um, collected by bees and hoverflies and used DNA techniques to identify what um, plants the pollen came from. And then with that information then could provide recommendations to gardeners about what 
plants that they're, they're visiting. So Perfect, yeah. And that's exactly what we're interviewing you for because it sounds like excellent pieces of research. And we know from our reading there are actually quite a few methods for recording flower visits by pollinators from watching flowers to the amazing word melissopalynology which is the way we look at honey um, to actually look at the pollen that's within it. But your research actually uses a different method, which you've just alluded to, which is part of a larger technique of environmental DNA or eDNA analysis. At a broad level, can you explain what environmental DNA and metabarcoding actually is? Yeah, so eDNA is DNA from an organism that can be found in the environment. So we know that we can identify humans from biological material that they may shed, um, so hair, um, skin, things like that. We can do the same for animals and plants and other uh, groups of wildlife. And we can get this biological material from uh, soil samples, from the sampling the air, um, and it allows researchers to really build up a detailed picture of what's in the environment. Um, and metabarcoding is the process of identifying multiple species in a sample through DNA barcodes. So DNA barcodes are small regions of DNA which have got um, big differences between species and small differences within a species, and that allows you to tell them apart essentially but it's a very complex um, yeah. technique it sounds complex and fiddly <laughs> to say the least um, and we know it's actually quite new this metabarcoding and it relies on a reference database one paper we read mentioned that only the UK and Canada have complete data for their entire flora is that right yeah, so as I said, to be able to do metabarcoding, you need to identify the DNA barcodes. And in order to do that, you need to have a, a reference library of known DNA barcodes. So the way that you do that is you sequence the DNA of uh, things that you can verify the identification of, and then you build a library with that. And then when you sequence biological material that you don't know what it is, you can match those sequences to the known sequences. And so reference libraries are sort of pivotal to being able to do any metabarcoding work. And um, the National Botanic Garden of Wales led the work that helped Wales to become the first nation in the world to uh, DNA barcode all of its native flora. Um, so that was 1,143 plants. Um, <laughs> and luckily there wasn't a lot more to do to finish the rest of the UK. So only a, an extra sort of 300 or so plants um, wow. needed to be barcoded to get the complete reference library for the UK. Since that work has been published, Canada have managed to do it. They've got about 5,000 um, native plants, so a lot more than us. Uh, but still, it's still an achievement. Um, yeah. And yeah, as, as far as I'm aware, no other um, nation has managed to, to do that yet. But there are people working sort of across the, the world to create a reference library for every living thing. Um, and so that's, you know, tends to be in across a smaller taxonomic group or a regional or local level. But yeah, it's, it's a global initiative. That's amazing. It's really nice to know that we're actually pioneering in something as well. Or you are, <laughs> should I say. <laughs> yeah, it was. So I wasn't actually directly involved. So I did some volunteering at the in that project. But yeah, Barcode Wales was published in 2012 and then Barcode UK um, at the beginning of 2021. So yeah, that was sort of, I was seeing all of that um, happen as I was um, getting into work at the Botanic Garden, which was, yeah, amazing. I've also read that it's considered to be semi-quantitative. Can you tell us what that actually means? Yep. Yeah, so what that means is that um, one 
grain of pollen does not give you one DNA sequence read. So if it was fully quantitative, then you could get an idea of how abundant um, a species was in a sample just by looking at the DNA reads. Um, but there are a lot of biases that happen sort of along the, the way in the extraction, amplification, sequencing um, process that means that it's not uh, quantitative. Mm-hmm. But we call it semi-quantitative because there has been a lot of work that shows that for the most abundant species in a sample, there is um, a relationship between the abundance and the the reads that that come out the other end. And so for all of our analysis, we often use proportions, and that's just an easier way of, of representing the data. And is other data like flowering times and seasons, so phenology, still important when you're using this metabarcoding analysis? Definitely. So um, even when you get all of the DNA sequence reads out, you have to be able to sense check it. So you have to compare that to what you know to be to be true. So if you get a load of um, IV coming up in April samples, you might think maybe that's not quite right. Um, so what we did at the garden was we did a floral survey every month um, of the entire site to record what plants are in flower and where and this really helped us to know our study system very very well and it's that along with the metabarcoding which enables you to have like a really clear understanding of what's happening just the metabarcoding data by itself is obviously useful but you have to be able to sense check it to know that something which is flowering when it should be flowering is is coming up in in the data that makes a lot of sense From all the publications we've seen with your name on, it looks like you've been pretty busy over the last few years. And we particularly like the studies you've done looking at all the types of flowers being visited by honeybees via DNA in their honey. In those studies, you showed how spring flowering trees are important early on in the year. Then they tend to move on to shrubs and then on to herbaceous plants later in the season. We thought it was fascinating how in most cases only a small range of all the flowering species available are actually visited. I think the stat that I remember was that out of a total 360 plant genera flowering in May in one year, honeybees only use 13% of them or something like that. Can you explain more about how honeybees change their foraging patterns over a year and why honeybees might be limiting the flowers that they're visiting? Yeah, we've done a lot of work now on honeybee foraging and we've started to get a really good idea of what they're doing throughout the year and looking at that sort of over a number of years. And so that was from the very first paper that we did, which I was part of um, as in my undergraduate placement year. So we collected the data in 2015, published in 2017. And... Since then, we've had three more studies um, that have looked at honeybee foraging, not just in the Botanic Garden, but in the UK. So we really know what honeybees are doing. Um, And yeah, as you said, they only tend to use a small proportion of what's available to them at any one time. And not only do they do that, but they tend to utilise a wide range of species across the year. So, for example, they might use maybe over 150 species... uh, taxa species or genera however you look at it throughout the year but when you really look at what's making up the vast majority of the diet it's only a very small number of species Mm. and yeah as you said in April and May it's really these sort of hedgerow species trees so things like salix prunus um, crataegus catoniaster malus um, the typical spring um, sort of hedgerow woodland species and then things like um, dandelion taraxicum and acer also really important during that time and then in June they start to switch to rubus so Mm -hmm. bramble when that's um, really starting to come out 
um, while still using some of the spring resources which are holding on. And then by July, they're really reliant on rubus. Um, they're using white clover as well. And then things like thistles and knapweeds and catsia as well. Yeah. Um, then by August, we've got the introduction of Himalayan balsam, Patiens glandulifera. Yes, <laughs> yeah. a bit of a controversial <laughs> a one. A little bit. <laughs> I'm, yeah, always unsure how to talk about that one. Um, and then they still are using the bramble and the white clover at that point. And then by September, they're, they're almost completely on the Himalayan balsam um, and things like ivy are then quite important at the end of the year and we've shown that this is not just happening sort of one year um, it's consistent when we look at multiple years my colleague Laura she was looking at honey samples I was looking at honey samples we were finding the same thing really yeah. when you compared honey from 2017 to pollen records from honey samples taken in 1952 the results showed a similar preference for spring flowering trees in both cases but there were also changes between the two data sets wasn't there and you found that bramble or rebus are now the most foraged genus for honeybees in the UK. What can your study tell us about how our floral landscape is actually changing? Yeah, so this study was quite unique, really, um, in the way that it compared honey foraging from the 50s to present day. And honeybees are a really good um, indicator of, of what the landscape looks like. And exactly that, you're right. So white clover was the top plant being used in uh, 1952. And... 2017 it was still being used a lot but um, to a much less degree and the plant that it used instead is rubus um, bramble so it flowers at the same time but there was also introduction of other plants so oilseed rape and Himalayan balsam which sort of um, replaced the white clover as well and the reason for that is because the landscape has completely changed since mm -hmm. the 50s so we've had the you know agricultural intensification there's reduction in clover lays there's increased use of uh, herbicides, pesticides, insecticides in the landscape and uh, grasslands are just one of the things that has decreased as a result and so this means that the honeybees had to switch to something and bramble flowers at the same time and Himalayan balsam and oilseed rape just weren't um, very common in the, the 50s so yeah. uh, Himalayan balsam I think was designated as an invasive species maybe in the 80s yeah. um, so yeah we've sort of seen this this complete shift and it sort of begs the question of well we know we're still losing hedgerows and woodland and, and grassland as well and honeybees are still using white clover a lot but what will they continue to yeah. to shift onto next? Yeah, we right. don't know. So it has told us a lot about how the the landscape has changed. And actually, what we did was we compared that to what the countryside survey was telling us about the environment, and it matched. So you know what we were seeing in the honey was really reflective of the landscape changes that we were seeing on the ground. Yeah, and it's so important that we have these numbers to back up things that we're <laughs> seeing. We can't just have a feeling about these things. Is yeah, the data is very important. You've researched flower visits by a wide range of pollinators, including bumblebees, non-corbiculate bees and hoverflies. You might need to explain that second point to the, our listeners. Yeah, so honeybees do get a lot of attention. They're the ones that people are most familiar with. You know, they know beekeeping, they know hives, um, but explaining that there's over 250 other species of bee in the UK is, is sort of light bulb moment for a lot of people. Yeah, it definitely is. Honeybees and bumblebees are social insects. So they live um, in a colony where you have a queen, which is the one that's reproducing. And the other females are workers and they tend to look after the young, you know, maintain the nest. And um, 
uh, go out and collect pollen. Yeah, they're social insects. And then we have solitary bees. Um, so in solitary bees, the female will collect pollen um, just by herself and, you know, feed that to the to the young and lay the eggs. Um, and that's why we call them solitary bees. But solitary bees is not like really a scientific term because it gets a bit confusing because some solitary bees do tend to um, exhibit sort of like primitive eusociality where they can have a bit of a division of labour but the queens and the workers won't look morphologically different so whilst they are not solitary then at that point they're also not social so the the way that I separated them then was by cubiculate bees and non-cubiculate bees and basically what that means is honeybees and bumblebees have pollen collecting apparatus on their leg yeah um it's quite specialized and that's called a cubicular so oh, that, this is another word for a repertoire yeah. i love it <laughs> very very technical so yeah that's a cubicular mm-hmm. um and there's only so there's only honeybees bumblebees um orchid bees and stingless bees which we don't have in the uk that have this cubicular the other, all of the other bees have what we call a scoper which is a collection of hairs which can be under the abdomen or it can be on the leg um, so that is why I used cubicular bees and okay. non-cubicular bees what I should have said there as well was that it wasn't just the solitary bees so I did sample some of the cuckoo bees and they don't even collect pollen so yeah. I sort of washed the uh, pollen off their bodies um, but to describe them as solitary bees isn't technically correct yeah. either so it's just a way to say honeybees bumblebees and yeah. anything else <laughs> yeah so on these types of pollinators there's no actual honey obviously if you'd sample so how did you collect the eat the dna from them yeah so i went out and walked along transacts every month and i collected any bees and hoverflies that i saw and then i washed the pollen from their body and then yeah just did a, a simple plant dna extraction simple it's not simple um <laughs> Extracted the DNA from that pollen, so separated the insect from the the pollen that had been washed off his body, and then yeah, did the DNA extraction process ah, from there. Okay, so in, washing insects is part of your PhD. Yes, there, <laughs> there was there were some questionable moments. Um, so we we washed them off with like a soapy soapy substance, and then. Yeah. Um, so I identified them all of the insects morphologically then. So you can do that with DNA, but that didn't work on first go and we didn't have enough time to sort of like develop it. So I just identified them morphologically, which was really good because that was how I learned how to identify all the different types of uh, insect that I caught. But what you ended up with was essentially very matted hair on a lot of um, mm-hmm. of these insects. So I did spend a bit of time, you know, dunking them in different alcohols and hair drying them and yeah it was it was there was some questionable moments where I thought if I if I could see myself as a person that had no idea what was going on right now I'd have a lot of questions (laughs) we'll spare you all the questions now but I do find it fascinating I think it sounds like your PhD in particular was actually a really nice mix of indoors and outdoors and lab work and walking transects yeah it sounds fascinating yeah, definitely. I was I was really lucky to to be able to do both. So to do field work in summer and then to do the lab work in the winter. Um, yeah, definitely a good balance. Scientist dream, I should imagine. <laughs> yeah. And the results you actually found were really fascinating as well. And they also have implications for the types of plants we grow in our gardens, which is why we're interviewing you. You were also looking at whether native plants are more commonly visited by non-natives. What did you actually find? 
Yeah, so we were really interested in finding out whether native plants were more attractive or less attractive than non-natives. Um, it's quite a difficult thing to look at because I think you've touched on this on the podcast before with Dr. Nick Tu, um, who is looking at sort of nectar values in garden plants of what makes something non-native. So, you know, we've got typical horticultural plants, which we know are horticultural, but they have native relatives. So like some of the really horticultural cherries or, or roses. Um, and then we've got really horticultural plants, which have got no relatives at all. So in my work, I group them to native and near-native. Um, so things like prunus and rosa would, would go in the near-native. And then the things which were didn't have any native relatives, so like rudbeckia and helenium, mm-hmm. they were horticultural. And then I had naturalized plants, so for example, Himalayan balsam. And what I found was through the year, the majority of plants that were being used were native and neonative plants. But at the end of the year, there was this really distinct sort of, not shift, but like reliance on the horticultural plants. So they used horticultural plants throughout the year, but they relied on them more at the end of the season. And that makes a lot of sense, I think, because at the end of the year, um, particularly in the botanic gardens of where I was, at the end of um, September and October, there's, there's mainly horticultural plants which are left flowering. So we've got the Himalayan balsam at that point in time as well, which was naturalized. And it's only really things like ivy, which is flowering at that time. Everything else is sort of, the flowering has, has sort of ceased by that point in yeah. time. So we think that the, well, there's been quite a bit of work now, which has shown the horticultural plants are sort of extending the season, yeah. which is good because, you know, everything's changing in terms of climate change. And are we going to get this mismatch in um pollinators flying and plants not being available so yeah I think the main thing to remember is is like as long as a horticultural plant isn't obviously inaccessible to a pollinator it's quite a nice um quite a nice demonstration of the fact that garden plants are important and you know we we try and um, have this narrative that native habitats should be conserved and we need to make sure that we're like maintaining them but there is a place for for garden plants and not everyone wants a massive swathe of rubus in their back (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's actually sort of the stance we take as well like natives are really important but we think that gardens are really valuable because it has such a rich mix of resource from basically all over the world in this country we're really lucky to be able to grow so many different things and actually put to mind we saw a hummingbird hawk moth in January this year which was both terrifying and exciting because I love moths but there was it was feeding on a mahonia and if that mahonia hadn't been there it would have come out and there would be nothing for it to actually feed on and to sustain hopefully it's been sustained and hopefully it found somewhere to go back into hibernation when it got cold again but yeah it's a really important thing to have I think like this rich diversity of flower in our garden yeah definitely mahonia is really important uh, plant for the winter so you do get some uh, winter active bumblebees which you know continue through the winter uh, and those workers are out and they tend to forage on things like mahonia so yeah without it they wouldn't they wouldn't survive it's time for native plant of the month and this month we are showcasing anemone nemorosa the wood anemone which is one of my favorites it's a beaut it's an absolute beauty but before i delve into that i just wanted to say that we have actually looked at how people are listening to the podcast we we do like a little bit of feedback 
from the numbers. And it looks like people are switching off maybe during the native plant of the month because we possibly go into too much detail. Seems I'm, like people I'm are trailing looking, off a little I'm bit. I'm looking at Ben here. <laughs> um, but so basically, we are going to try and keep it a bit more succinct in your ears. But we are going to be putting any more detailed information, like things about how to plant the plant, into the newsletter. So if you do want that extra information, then please sign up to the newsletter. Yeah, basically, we're just taking out some of the cultivation notes and some of the um, varieties, garden varieties. And we're just going to put that in the newsletter instead, which is free, by the way. You can just sign up at our website, wildlifegardenpod.com. Yeah, probably more useful. I've actually seen reports on the socials of anemone in flower, which is the right time, March. So hopefully this will actually kick us into checking out a Nottinghamshire woodland that we discovered last year. Because honestly, we've never seen so much anemone in all of our lives in one place. It just went on for miles and miles and miles and was absolutely stunning. It's a new-ish nature reserve. It's actually on an old oil field. So obviously... The first inland oil field in the UK, yeah, I believe. right, right, yep. exactly. Which will give you a clue to where it is if you look it up on the <laughs> Nottingham Wildlife Trust website. So what is it? It's known as the wood a anemone. It is a plant. It's known as the wood anemone, windflower, grandmother's nightcap, and also moggy nightgown. And this is a beautiful, low-growing plant that, when it's established, carpets the ground from now in March and through into April. It actually sits in the buttercup family, which is the ranunculaceae, and the flowers are solitary and held on long stalks, about 25 centimetres above the ground. They're a classic open star-shaped flower and they hold themselves in a sort of modest nodding way. They've got five to eight sepals as opposed to petals. And this is where I need a botanical klaxon, please, Ben. Here we go. Botany. A sepal is usually green and leaf-like and is sometimes what encloses and protects the petals. But in some plants, like the anemone, it looks for all intents and purposes just like a petal. So the sepals and wood anemone are most often white and you're also fairly likely to see some with purple streaking on them as well. And we've we've seen quite a lot of that in these woodlands that we visited. Yeah, it's very pretty. There's also a sky blue form that can naturally occur, although this is actually really rare and I've read that it might even be totally extinct in the wild. But if you know of some, lucky you. I've um, never even heard of that. No, I, I'd love to see that. I think that that would be amazing. And the flowers actually vary quite a lot in size, but they're roughly two to three centimetres and they have really pretty pollen-covered yellow anthers arranged in the centre, so that forms part of the beauty of the plant. And on a sunny day, if you are lucky enough to be spending it mooching about an ancient woodland, you would actually also notice that the nodding flowers track the sun across the sky, so they follow the sun. They also fully or partially close their flowers if it's overcast, and this is something we found when we tried to photograph them on less than sunny days. Yeah. <laughs> Not so successful. Yeah, didn't we mention that with some other things in the buttercup family? Was it... Um, Ficaria uh, Yeah, lesser celandine. Yeah, they do so. the same. Yeah. So. Yeah, so it must be buttercups are quite good at that. Indeed. At closing up when it's, it's foul weather out. Very sensible. After the flowers have emerged, you then get the leaves come. And these are deeply lobed with a red stem. They're actually very beautiful in themselves. So delving into a bit of its history, the term anemone comes from the Greek word animos, which means wind. And we've talked about that before, actually. And this is due to how the seeds are dispersed. And this is also where it gets one of its common names, the windflower, from. As well as being beautiful, it also emits like a musky scent if you have a lot of it in a woodland. You might have smelt it, which also gave way to a local name that seems to have died out, which was just simply smell fox. 
Smell fox. And I'll leave you to decide whether that's a nice smell or not, because I don't know if foxes smell are well known for their delightful smells. But yeah, anyway. well, from the swearing you do when you kneel in one of their piles. Yeah, I know, but that's their poo, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's different to just the musk, general muskiness. I think I can sense when a fox is in the air, because there is a distinct musk. But back to anemone. It's also the county flower of the old county of Middlesex. And in the language of flowers, it symbolises brevity, expectation and forlornness. Now, I looked up... Forlornness? Yes, I thought it was a bit sad. I know. But I did look up the language of flowers because we often talk about it. And it's a very nice twee thing. But apparently it was just developed in France in 1819 by a woman called Charlotte de la Tour, who just decided what flowers meant what (laughs) so anyway it's quite nice i guess william robinson a 19th century pioneer of wildlife gardening loved wood anemone and we can completely see why from its beauty and in terms of ye olde medicine nicholas culpepper the herbalist in the 17th century believes that you could cure leprosy with a concoction from the leaves and that the juice and i quote snuffed up the nose purgeth the head mightily i'll try that next time i'm hungover (laughs) please don't in addition the root and i quote bringeth away many watery and phlegmatic humors and is therefore excellent for the lethargy i'm telling you that's it's a hangover cure (laughs) well flash forward to more modern times and actually scientists have found that anemone nemorosa does have antibacterial properties but it is poisonous and can irritate our human skin if handled so as always Don't go doing any DIY medicine on the back of this, please. It's native to the UK and across temperate Europe, through into Russia in the east, and is found as far south as the Caucasus Mountains in Turkey. We've also introduced it to New Zealand and a few sites in North America. But in the UK, you'll find it everywhere except the very far western Isles of Scotland and in the far northwest of Ireland. There's also a bit of a gap in records in the Fens, just south of the Wash in East Anglia. Those are all essentially areas where woodland habitat is rare, where you therefore tend to get less anemone. Yeah, that's quite interesting because they often talk about it as one of those indicator plants, don't they, of ancient woodland, where in the Fens, which is where I grew up, there's not really any ancient woodland. It's no. all new birch, well, newish birch that's, that's recolonised. It's one fen. massive lake. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I wonder if that's why you don't tend to find it as often in the woodlands in the Fenland. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, But it is interesting because while we find it frequently in woodland in the UK, it can also be found in ancient meadowland. And in the West Country, it's prevalent in hedge banks, while in the Yorkshire Dales, it also features on the limestone pavements. So actually, there's quite a bit more habitat diversity there. And I've read that it likes light. That's critical. It won't grow in dense shade. But there does seem to be some disagreement about whether it's a fully woodland species, in which case, if it's growing in the open, it indicates where woodland used to be, or if it is an actual fact, a plant that likes a variety of habitats. So that's actually a bit up in the air. But I don't know that there was ever woodland on the limestone. No, no, exactly. And there's so, no soil on it, no, basically, no. at all. So. so it's made people... It is an indicator of ancient woodland because of how it grows, which is what I'll go into in a second. But... It does appear to be just, it enjoys a bigger variety of habitat mm. than we first thought. So that is very interesting. It is, I didn't isn't know it? that. Um, its population is also, this is a good thing, it's actually quite stable in the UK. And there are only localised declines, which people think is probably due to the decline in traditional woodland management. So things like coppicing, where the plants just then become shaded out. But enough of that. Let's move on to the exciting sexual antics of Anemone nemorosa. 
caveat for the sexual antics of this plant because the only biological information we could find was from 1985. And as I was born in 1984, I know that was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Ancient history. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Um, And back then, there actually also seemed to be a bit of a dispute, so more disagreement, as to whether the male sexual organs emerge first, last, or at the same time as the female sexual parts. And we do love a bit of botanical disagreement. That that may have been cleared up since 1985, but I have not found anything uh, new to read about this. You could probably go and have a look, actually. Well, you want to sit in a... Oh, yeah, I would love to sit in a woodland and watch. That would be amazing. You'd have to be there for about three weeks, though. Yeah, we can take the time off work. Sit I'm sure our customers bag. won't mind. <laughs> a few cup of soup. Sorry, I'm too busy to come and garden I'm for you. I'm watching the sexual parts of a flower develop. Yeah, I think you'd be locked up. But there's even disagreement about whether it's capable of self-pollination. So we might have to leave that as a bit of a botanical mystery, unless one of you lovely listeners actually knows better, because we know we have a lot of botanists that listen. So, yeah, get in touch if you do know it grows from a brittle brown rhizome and think something between a chocolate matchstick like you only see for sale at christmas and a twiglet which also weirdly is mostly rolled out for the festive season so something between those two which is only usually about five centimeters long it's quite a slender small thing we've planted them before and when, when they first arrived the first time we saw them we were like what on earth is this They just look completely dead, don't they? They do. And they are very brittle as well. So going on to the sexual parts, though, in the centre of the flower, there are between 0 and 89 stamens. That's the male sexual part. Average about 45. And these hold the pollen. And these are arranged in three whorls. Whorls. I never know how to say that. Whorls. Is that how you say it? Which spiral in the centre of the flower. And the inner and outer whorls have shorter filaments than the middle one. It really is a very pretty arrangement of these stamen and anthers in the centre of the plant. If it is protandrous, which is where the male sexual parts ripen first, like one author I read thinks, the flower was shown to be in the male phase for one week. And during that time, pollen tends to be released in the morning. And interestingly, there's actually no nectar produced by the wood anemone. It's all pollen that the the insects, the invertebrates will come for. After that phase, the white translucent female stigmas ripen. And there are usually about 25 carpels in total. Remember, each carpel has a stigma style and an ovary, which contains an egg. Yes, that's the entire female organ, isn't it? Indeed. So there's multiple carpels, 25 carpels in the centre. And when they're pollinated, they shrivel and blacken. So that's something else for Ben to look out when he's camping out in the woods the sepals those petal-like structures actually remain on the plant after pollination to protect the achenes which is just the form of seed that forms on this particular plant while they ripen but then they also drop off after after the ripening process happens each flask shaped achene and remember that is the fruit that's the fruiting body the name of it on this plant contains one single seed and this head of achenes droops after fertilisation and then they ripen off by about May. They disperse with the wind and then lie dormant until the following spring while the leaves around them wither away and they're actually completely gone by July. It's absolutely mad. If you go to a woodland now and you just cannot fathom that there'll be no evidence of them come July, even though they're so like in your face at this time, it's pretty spectacular really. Yeah, absolutely classic spring flower. Yep. Come out before the leaves are on the trees. As soon as the leaves are out, they're gone. 
They're gone. For but the they're next not year. they're actually not gone. They're they're very busy growing away underground. The seed is rarely viable, and even if it is, its fertility actually drops off pretty quickly. And because of this, I read that only 4.4% of all reproduction in anemone nemorosa is done via sexual reproduction. So that means it's more likely to spread via its root. And the rate of growth of this root, which is a rhizome, is also really slow. It's about two, three millimetres a year for the first five years of the plant. And then after that, it increases to 2.5 centimetres a year. And that's effectively how the plant spreads. So this is vegetatively, which means that you end up with a large swathe of clonal plants. So at that rate, you're looking at about six feet every hundred years of encroachment of anemone. And you very rarely get new populations pop up because of this unviable seed. And that's why it's indicative of ancient woodland, because if you've got a large stand, then it's probably been there for a really, really long time. Question then. Oh, God, I don't like this. That woodland we talked about earlier. Yeah. Most anemone we've ever seen anywhere ever, forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that woodland's only been there for about 30 years because it was on an old oil field. Oh, interesting. Yes, that's a very good question. So they Mm. must have been planted. They must have just got a job lot in of anemone. That's right? uh, It's the only way that there can be so many of them. I think we should ask the Wildlife Trust because they look after that site. Yeah. I'm interested. I want to know. Yep. Well, because of that spread, you would assume they'd been there hundreds of years. Nothing otherwise. gets past Hawkeye Ben. That's what <laughs> I'm going to say. It's good. It's a good skill, but not so good if I don't know the answer on the spot. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's, it's interesting, though, because this is one of those plants where yeah. often you get garden escapes as well. And because they are so often planted... It, it's sometimes with these native plants, it's not clear what their natural range is or yeah. their previously native range, let's say. Yeah. Um, because sometimes we go and plant them all around. We do. Know, so. We're pretty good at that. But going back to that rhizome. You're just moving on. <laughs> I'm moving on because I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> yeah, going back to that rhizome, it actually continues to develop over April and June. So this is when the leaves are dying back and generally the plant looks like it's disappearing. And a white bud develops on its tip. And by October, and this is all underground, the flower bud is actually totally formed with with pollen as well but it lies dormant until March which is when it emerges again and starts to flower and all that happens from emerging to flowering in a really really fast two-week period because the plant's trying to beat the trees coming into leaf you said the pollen's already developed underground for the following year yeah yeah I've never heard of that no isn't that amazing it's all ready to go I mean these are pollen cells they're really tiny obviously that's incredible though. Yeah. Segwaying onto what uses the pollen. So I've looked into the pollination of anemone and it seems that hoverflies are a really, really important group for this plant and for pollination. And this is really great because it's now formed a starting point for me in my quest to be better at identifying them. I mean, it's a really big group. We've got about 280 species of hoverfly in the, in the UK, but you know, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? The two that are really important for anemone is one called Platycheirus chirus discomanus or disomanus. That's really, that's a difficult name to say. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a really small hoverfly that pollinates anemone. It's found in mid-spring and you can often also see it on blackthorn and generally hanging around woodland edges and in scrubby grassland. And also the larvae, like other hoverfly, are aphidophagus. So they eat aphids. So that is a gardener's friend. Good word. 
Another group of anemone pollinating hoverflies are in the Melanostoma genus. Now, this is a really big genus, loads of different species. So I'll just focus in on one, which is Melanostoma melanum. And that can be found around between April and October around grassland. But again, pollinating anemones. And as well as the hoverflies, you'll also probably see plenty of bees. So like the good old Bombus terrestris, the buff tail, and also the red-tailed bumblebee, Bombus lapidarius. And interestingly, the bilberry bumblebee, if you live in and around Heathland, Bombus monticola, which really shows how diverse the, the, the populations of anemone are, because you do get anemone on Heathland as well. And a huge array of flies, including green bottles, dance flies, march flies, and the yellow dung fly. One of the two flies I think I can actually identify is the yellow dung fly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And the green bottle as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other one. <laughs> <laughs> so what else eats anemone as well as just pollinating it? So not a huge list is found to be eating the wood anemone. And that's because I've read that it tastes bitter because of a poisonous compound called anemonin. So I think most creatures have to be particularly hungry to have a good old munch. But on the list are a couple of beetles. So that's in the coleoptera. There's a few flies. That's the diptera. And there's also a sawfly called Endophytus anemones, whose larvae mine the leaves. And if you head over to ukflyminds.co.uk, who, <laughs> who knew? I know. It's, the internet is amazing. Yeah, UK fly mines. Brilliant. It's absolutely, it's a great, it's a bit of a rabbit hole to be honest with you. But the photos do show how the anemone leaf looks when it contains a larvae of that sawfly. It's really interesting. That's great. Well done to whoever came up with that website. That's good. <laughs> and there are also a handful of moths whose larvae will eat anemone, including the fern, the twin spot carpet and the flax tortrix. Over to the fluffier end of the spectrum in the animal world, bank voles have also been found to eat both the leaves and the rhizomes and some roe deer have also been observed eating the leaves. If you would like anemone nemorosa in your garden, I will just very quickly summarise that it is really tolerant of a wide range of soil types and pHs. So I think most gardens could definitely have a stand. The only thing it doesn't like is being completely dried out in spring. So if you've got a really, really sunny, dry border that is prone to drying out, then probably avoid putting it in there. But as we said, we're going to put more information about planting it into the newsletter. So head on over to there if you would like to learn how to put it in your garden. And if you do you absolutely won't be disappointed because you will end up with an anemone nemorosa constellation shining its white flowers throughout March and April. Before we finish, if you're listening to us, there's a really high chance that you are well aware of the diabolical felling of trees in Plymouth City Centre by the council. Trees I knew. It's where I went and did my undergrad. Indeed. Ben did know those trees well. And we also happen to be friends with the people that have been running the campaign to, first of all, prevent it, which obviously hasn't worked because the council did it in the dead of night but they are still campaigning to save the remaining trees. And now this has gone to judicial review. They are looking for support from all over the country. And it is really, really important that we all step up and do everything we can to help them. So I'm just going to give a shout out. Head over to strawplymouth.com. And that stands for Save the Trees of Armada Way, which is where they've been felled. And 
do anything that you can to help. It, it really is gratefully received. Right, that's it for today. Instead of giving you a load of guff like we normally do, um, sign up for this, blah, 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 Facebook, Twitter, whatever, we have some music to play you, which is really exciting. So a listener to the show called Tess Bisson, who happens to be a wildlife gardener, professional gardener down in Sidmouth. Um, she, as well as being a fantastic gardener, has also recorded and sent us a song, which is amazing because it's it's just, oh, it's just so good. And you're going to hear it in a minute. So if you're down in the Sidmouth area and you need a gardener, then look up Tess. But yeah, that's it for us today. I think we should sing a tuneful goodbye yeah, to so lead Tess in. Here is Tess Bisson with Biodiversity. Bye! So let your long grow higher, welcome in the wildflowers, put away the spray and mower. And while away the hours, just watching the bees and butterflies, bzz, bzz, bzz. Get yourself a tree and plant it, it can be small or tall. Creatures from far and wide will soon come to call, and the leaves will help the planet breathe. Ah, biodiversity, biodiversity, biodiversity. Keeping it growing, keeping it real Put some water in your garden, in a pond or just a sink Frogs and toads and newts appear, birds will come to drink Dragonflies will bring you joy, ribbit, ribbit, ribbit Biodiversity, biodiversity Biodiversity, keeping it growing, keeping it real. The news today can really get you down, but we can give a helping hand in every city and town. All together now, go wild about every while. We build a haven out the back, a compost heap for bugs to creep, pile old logs in a stack. Invertebrates are part of the chain. For the web of life to start again Iggle, wiggle, wig Biodiversity, biodiversity, biodiversity Keeping it growing, keeping it real Biodiversity, biodiversity, biodiversity Keeping it growing, keeping it real Keeping it growing